Hey everybody, Tyree here with Before I Forget along with Kevin. Say hey, Kevin. Hey, Kevin. We got it right this time. Look at that. And here we are with another episode of Before I Forget, man. And we, we are this- we are back with another episode. Um, yeah. man, after having those couple of weeks off and then having last week's episode out and then now today's, so it'll be good. Um, we have, like and like I said in that that clip uh, a while back. Um, really good episodes coming out with some really positive uh, people hoping to spread their positive message. And today is no different. Today we have Derek Ross, um, former uh, Army combat engineer, 12 Bravo for you military types, uh, with deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan, um, and uh, doing some pretty cool positive things for his community. Um, Derek, go ahead and say hi. How's it going, everybody? It's nice to meet everyone. Thanks for joining us. Hey, hey, man. Yeah, dude. Um, so yeah, let's uh, let's jump right in and get our uh, entire bodies wet. Uh, Tyree, what's your question? They hit him with the the OG question of the day. Why did you join the military? All I wanted to do was be a soldier. You know, I would see these documentaries on the World War II and Vietnam. Uh, I'm like, man, those people are doing some really crazy shit. You know, they're blowing things up, like going all through all sorts of things. And, and that kind of like spoke to me, you know, as a very young kid. And of course I would watch uh, uh, GI Joe and like transformers. And it was always like this very strong male figure, um, you know, fighting for their people. And, and I respected that. And, uh, you know, and then fast forward to, I think it was, uh, I think it was sixth grade when nine eleven happened. I saw how my teachers, I saw how like other kids were reacting in school and I, I didn't want to hurt like that. Uh, I wanted to protect them. I felt this, this kind of calling from, from that age. And, uh, and then after that, I essentially like lined up my life to prepare myself for military service. I was in sports. I mean, I was, uh, when I got to high school, I was doing preseason workout before school, uh, weightlifting class during school, sports after school, and then I would go home and run. And uh, it's just kind of random, but, you know, we would go to uh, parades in Chicago. And I'd look around and, and everyone was happy. Uh, everyone was very peaceful. Uh, everyone was having a good time and there was nothing there that was um, harming that, you know, and, uh, and then when nine 11 happened, I was like, man, I don't care how long it takes. Um, you know, hopefully the war is over by the time I'm old enough. Um, unfortunately it wasn't, but, uh, man, I, yeah, I decided right then and there, like, I don't care how long it takes. I'm going to go there and I'm going to fight these people. It's like, no one, no one's going to fuck with us. Like, 17 years old, went to basic training in between junior and senior year, and then MOS training after I graduated. And uh, at that time, I was reservist and uh, 89 Bravo ammo specialist. I kind of had this mindset of I need to just get in the Army as fast as possible. And and however that looks like is however it looks like. And uh, so I did. And then um, under a year after getting on active duty, so I was a little 19-year-old, uh, turned 20 in Iraq and before I actually went on active duty, I think my unit was already in country in Iraq. What was it about the reserves when you were doing that, that you were like, this is, 
this is not any I need to do full time. Was it because the reserves just wasn't living up to the hype, or um, if there was any hype, <laughs> or because you know you got a taste of it and you're like this this is what I want to do, but this isn't enough of it. Um, so my experience is kind of unique. I was, uh, the timing of it, like my unit had just been started and, uh, I was literally the only guy in my unit. So I was just like, e nothing showing up and then talking to some random NCO in the building. And he's like, Oh yeah, you're the only guy here from that unit. If I remember correctly, like an E5 showed up, two sergeant majors showed up. And so it was just like four of us or a few of us. And then like slowly as we continued to drill for a few months, uh, some more people showed up and it was just basically like showing up, going to eat sandwiches at lunchtime and, you know, scrolling social media, like doing, there was nothing to, to check on or work or clean. Like we sweep and mop, of course, you know, the army. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You that every day. Yeah. So you got you got the full army reserve experience right there. <laughs> Off the bat, you have a very you have a very different experience from a lot of the people that we've had on the show. Seeing is you're a lot younger uh, mm-hmm. than a lot of the people that we've had on. Uh, I want to say ninety eight percent of the people that we've spoken to they were in the military when nine eleven happened. You oh, wow. were very young. Um, mm-hmm. How did that affect the people around you at the time? Because I mean, sixth grade, right? How did you guys deal with that? I mean, I know how us military folks deal with it. Who, how how did kids deal with it? That's actually a good question. I've actually never thought about that uh, at the time. I know a lot of us were just confused. I mean, for me, I was like, all right, I'm going to fight these people. What can I do now to start preparing for it? I remember um, looking at the Army Times a lot. They would post a bunch of uh, deployment photos. I don't even know, man. Like, I never, I never thought about like how these other kids were affected. I, I kind of had like, this is what I'm doing. This is why I'm doing it, and I just need to keep doing it until it's time to go. Um, that is a crazy. I don't think that you're off, man. But that that is a, like a crazy young age to be deciding something like that because. I mean, sixth grade, you're what, 13, 14 years old. I mean, you're, yeah. you're just now getting in the swing of puberty and you're over here decide, deciding, you know, well, when I'm able to join the military, I'm going to do that. I'm going to go to war. I'm going to go fight these people for what they did um, in New York. Um, that's, that's a crazy young age to, to, to decide that that's something that you're going to do and, 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 and basically like force yourself to kind of grow up into that. Like, it's, 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 I say that because like, I, I didn't know I was going to join the military until like the month before I signed my contract. I had no desire to join. You know what I'm saying? When I remember, uh, in the early nineties, I guess, or late eighties, whenever that movie came out, the movie Navy SEALs with, uh, Charlie Sheen. I remember, I remember when that count come out, I wanted to be a Navy SEAL, you know, I, I wanted three things from that movie, be a Navy SEAL, own an MP5 and own a Jeep. and I went army instead and I got the other two, but you know, two like, out of three, ain't but, bad, man. but like, I never, I never wanted to like, it wasn't like a, a dream of mine, there, but I guess I say that to like in the, in the nineties growing up, there wasn't anything really big going on. I mean, the first Gulf war, but I was 10, 11 years old. Mogadishu was about the same age, but the bulk of the nineties was pretty chill. And so there wasn't anything that was like, I want to go do that. I'm going to go be all that I can be. You know what I mean? And 
So to, at, at in sixth grade, shit, yeah. man. In sixth grade, I was deciding which which girl I had a crush on. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, that was as bad as it got. Like that is heavy. Like um, not only that, but knowing full well that you want to go into combat, basically, from such a young age. Kevin yeah. hit the nail on the head. I mean, we're thinking about. You know, if you like me, check the box on the paper at that point as young people. But you're saying, hey, man, I'm going to I want that uniform. I want to get in the in the dirt. I want to, you know, fight it out like that's yeah. it takes a different kind of kid to, to go that route from that age, man. And you don't have you don't there's nobody in your family that served. No. Um, well, and so the, the thing Man, that's wild. Okay, so I've been a drill sergeant in the reserves for a long time, and so I've seen I've seen trainees, uh, seventeen, eighteen year olds back in two thousand nine, and seventeen, eighteen year olds as of last year. And I always ask the same question: like, what what got you here? Why are you in the army? Like, why did you join? And, you know, and I use that to help motivate them along the way. The answers have changed wildly over that time frame. Um, back then, it was patriotism. It was you know. My dad was in, my uncle was in, um, I come from a, a family history. I've got a member of my family in every major war since the founding of the United States. And, um, this last go around, a lot of those kids were like, well, they offered me $45,000 enlistment bonus, $60,000 college. You know what I mean? And I'm like, okay. Uh, so what about patriotism what about the united states of america what about the flag what about any of that stuff like well i mean that stuff's cool i guess but that wasn't really like a motive wow so that's a wild thing but to be in sixth grade and 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 with with no history no family history of of military service to be in in sixth grade being like just off these documentaries those must have been good uh, some good documentaries man history channel man fucking a plus (laughs) back when it was good Back when it was good, not reality shows. (laughs) Yeah, that's wild though. So, so you join, right? You 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 get your chance to deploy. Um, was it was it everything you thought it would be? No, Um, there's a lot of things that people don't tell you, and uh, you know, I had other dreams to do even more and stay in longer and retire. Fortunately, that didn't happen. So it didn't go the way I wanted to go, and. I didn't really know what a deployment looked like because on my first one, I was a ammo specialist and we're supposed to run the ammo supply point and issue out all the rounds and everything to, to the units. Uh, and then we didn't even do that because uh, the army in infinite wisdom uh, hired a bunch of civilians to do our jobs. And so we were just kind of there uh, like, what do we do now? And the little mice that would run into the road, like they looked like, Small kangaroos, <laughs> little tiny mice. Like, never. Man, that's got to that's, yeah. that's got to be a scary time though. Like when we were in Iraq, so we 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 mostly hung out in the city. We were mechanized infantry with first uh, first ID, and uh, mm. we we just uh, we stayed. We were very rarely on the MSR. Maybe if we were going to Anaconda, um, but like otherwise, we were in town. But like we when we you know. We, we we would hear stories while we were there and speaking to folks after the fact, like everybody running up and down the MSR for supply runs or this or that, man, soft targets left and right, IEDs, you know, like they were the the, the target of uh, the subject of ambushes all the time. 
So I couldn't even imagine like that being like your AO, like driving up and down with all these other people who may or may not have the proper training or experience to be doing what they're doing on top of hauling what you're hauling. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like that, dude. Yeah. I don't know. It's, uh, I want to say we, we maybe got like two pop shots on us. Really? Yeah. One time we were moving. Um, the only reason I say, I want to say it is cause like I, I definitely heard the, you know, the whiz. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was like when I was fairly new there and I was like, uh, spoke to my squad leader, who's the TC of the truck. And I was like, Hey, what's this noise? And he just responded like, what are you doing? And I'm like, Oh, I'm just standing here. And he like fucking pulls me down. He's like, don't fucking stand. Idiot. Like, like, Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, you, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. yeah. You do. And then, and yeah, reality sets in. Like, oh yeah, I should probably duck when I hear that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. yeah. You know, it's funny. Uh, you know, that was, of course we were infantry. So all of our training was combat related. And so, the whole like ducking when you hear something going off like that was we knew to do that, but we trained that way towards the end of the deployment. However, we just didn't do it as much because you're like, listen, if they when they initiate contact, if they don't hit anybody right then, they're probably not going to hit anybody. So there's no reason to really get down. Yeah, <laughs> there was uh, more times than not. These people couldn't hit water if they jumped off a bridge. So pretty wild stuff. <clears throat> stupid it's the um, truth man how many times have you gotten shot at and then you're just like wow there it goes oh i know i know it's mm-hmm. uh it reminds me of a movie but i can't remember what the movie is but it's basically like somebody's just firing at the person he's like he should be hit because he's like pulp fiction you know is it pulp fiction yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah like what how did you yeah exactly yeah. how'd you miss uh how'd you uh, come on come on i'm standing here i'm giving you the entire target you know mm-hmm. um so okay so who when, when who did you go over with? Yeah, twenty uh, fourth Ordnance Company. That was for uh, my Iraq deployment. So we were a small like detachment. Our main our main people were in Fort Stewart, and then there was a small detachment of us at Fort Benning. Okay, so we, out of Georgia, and then you come back and you said, "Well, I don't want to be. I don't want to do the was it eighty nine Bravo. I don't want to do that anymore." I want to go. I want to go do something cool, but not all the way cool. So you went twelve Bravo. Oh, <laughs> like I want to. I want to do the hard thing, but not all the way hard. Walking in front of you guys. <laughs> for for you guys listening, the people who clear the way, they're. I can't even explain how in how much danger they're in before we get there more often than not because they have to clear the way for this shit. They have to clear the mines out. They have to clear the obstacles under fire. Could you imagine doing your job with half the town trying to kill you? Yeah. That's what these guys were doing, and that's fucking heavy, man. Hats off to those fucking guys who do that shit, man. Mm-hmm. Round of applause from the fucking roadcast. Okay. Gonna, but, yeah. yeah. So, and 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 so on that on that point. So, for those that are not familiar with how it works in the military, in the army, we you know we have combat arms, Marines too, and obviously, like the best is the infantry. Everyone knows that, and, and 
So you have your 11 Bravos, your infantry guys, your 12 Bravos, your combat engineers. You got your Cav scouts. What are they? 19 Deltas. Um, tankers, artillery dudes, 13 Bravos. Uh, I'll give 13 mics a, a break too. So we're all combat arms in 18 series special forces, but we, they're a whole different class of people. Um, and we all talk shit to each other, right? Cause like, that's just how it is. We're, we're, we're rivals on the same team and we all act like we're Billy badass on the street. But the truth is, um, we're all equally badass, except the infantry is a little bit more badass because it's so, you know, and we like to say, and, and I, when we were in basic training, man, it's, it's, it's beaten to our heads. Like we are like the queen of battle for a reason. We're the queen on the chessboard. We can go anywhere, anytime. But like Tyree said, and you know, like kind of what you were saying, we can't move there unless the engineers have cleared the way, you know what I'm saying? So it's, it's, uh, a. <clears throat> It's 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 a it's a it's a group effort. You know, the artillery will soften the targets. The engineers will destroy bridges or take out targets that we that we that, that need to be taken out to slow the advance of the bad guys. Or, or build to, one. Or build a bridge. Or, yeah, or build a bridge to help our advance. Um, and then the the tanks come in and they just blast holes through things. <laughs> I was so glad to have it. We had a platoon of Abrams with us when we were over there. So oh, glad to have those guys. And you've you've seen the buildings in Iraq. There was no need for an Abrams in town, but we had them. We had two of them, and uh, y- y- you know, Cav Scouts. I think we can all agree, Cav Scouts are probably the most useless of the combat arms. Oh, okay. uh, I'm a forward observer. Well, we do that too in the infantry, but whatever. Um, but there is a there is a, a a quote that I I, I um that all this reminds me of, and this is why this is why I, I, I like to say that the infantry is like you know, the better one. And it, it, it's not true by any means, but so you can bomb a hill, you can blow it up and kill every bastard on it. But until a 19 year old grunt stands on it with his rifle, it belongs to no one. And so a, a world war two veteran uh, in a documentary uh, on the history channel said it best. Um, the infantry fights the last hundred meters of battle. Um, you know, everybody can clear the way and get there, but we have to go there and actually like clear the, clear the way. But it is it is a unified effort, and I just I love that we talk shit about each other. It's it's the best part because you know two infantry battalions can go toe to toe. They can fight each other. Well, we're the better battalion. No, we're the better battalion. Blah blah blah. And then we fight, and then the the artillery dudes will show up, and then the two infantry battalions or the two infantry groups will get together and fight the artillery guys, and then the, the tankers will show up, and they'll start talking shit, and then we all start fighting each other. And then the the twelve bravos will show up, and you know the uh, the calf scouts will show up, and we're all fighting each other. And then the MPs show up, or a bunch of pogues, you know, non combat arms people show up, and we're all like, <laughs> "What?" And then we all join together to fight them. <laughs> that's that's one of, that's been one of my favorite things about being combat arms in, in the army. Man, is like it doesn't matter what combat arms you are, if it's a twelve bravo, thirteen bravo, eleven bravo, whatever, like. We all do a job that nobody wants to fucking do. Mm-hmm. It takes a special person, man. And your friends are always the fucking craziest ones. Yeah. So what? What was it that made you go uh, twelve Bravo? Like, what was that? Re- what was that whole reclass thought process and and all of that? Um. Okay. So I love being outside of the wire. I love like getting to see the country, the people, um, and uh, I just hated being in garrison and I hated being on the fob like 
why did I travel across the earth to just stand around and sit around and do nothing? Like I'm here for a reason. I spent like years of my life preparing my life preparing for this. Man, I don't want to just come here and like waste time, you know? And, um, one of my friends, uh, had deployed before and he, he mentioned, you know, Hey, you know, combat engineers are always outside the wire. They're always doing something on mission and, uh, you know, they get to blow a lot of shit up. And I was like, Oh, okay. You're like, all right, you're speaking my language now. And, uh, and so, um, yeah, it was like right after the Iraq deployment, we found out that everyone in our MOS at our rank, uh, I was a specialist at the time. Uh, our MOS was overpowered and the army had the option to reclass for four years and, and gain a different MOS. And so I was like, man, I'm doing this. Let's go. Like, this is going to get me out there. Like, exactly where i need to go and so i reclassed and then uh went from uh, benning to uh this um, so i got stationed i was at benning and then i went to fort wainwright okay oh. and it was up alaska yeah <clears throat> man that is beautiful up there it was, man. At that time, I regret so much about that, my time up there, because now I'm a huge outdoorsman. And back then, I was like a city slicker, and I'm like, oh, the outdoor sucks, whatever. Like, mm-hmm. oh, man, I, I had the Chena River, like, right behind my barracks, too. It was beautiful, man. It was last as gorgeous. It really is. It but sucks that you don't realize it until it's gone. Like, fuck. Yeah. It was, I, I feel that every time. We were in Germany, and, like, every, like, once a week, I'm like, fuck. I used to live in a different country. It was beautiful. I can go, if I wanted to, I can go down to Paris t- today. Yeah. So, and then, you know, time flies and you're like, oh, you know, memories. You want to try to go back and visit later. Hopefully, you can go back and visit at some point and, and camp oh, yeah. out, I guess. I'm you know? going up there for a caribou, maybe a moose hunt. There you go. I don't know if I'm that good of a hunter yet. So, but, uh, that's the goal, man. Definitely want to go back up there. So you went 12 Bravo, you're going to blow shit up and then you get up at Wainwright, man. I, you know, it it was funny and not to kind of like break off from that, but like every single person that I've talked to who has been stationed in Alaska at first was like, really? It's so cold. And it's a frozen tundra wasteland. And then they get there and they're like, this place is amazing. Like I, I, I have not met one person who has been to been stationed in Alaska who hated it, not one, which is wild to me because I've met people who were stationed in Europe who were like, uh, not really my cup of tea. People in Hawaii, but, yeah, Hawaii, like oh they're excited to go to Hawaii and then the island fever kicks in like oh I can only, I only have these three four places to go and it's all so fucking expensive, you know. Um, yeah. yeah, shout out to the people in, in Hawaii right now. It's another sidetrack. Maui is on fire. It looked like a nuke went off there. I was just there a couple weeks ago. If you can donate in any way possible, please do so. It's funny you say that because, Derek, you have a fundraiser on your Instagram for that that you sent to me. Um, have you looked at those numbers lately? What they're what they're what they've what they've gained? No, the last time I checked, um, I think it was like 1.3 million or something like that. They're at 1.9 now. Oh, nice. Yeah. Their goal was a, a million. So they, they, th- this, this, this campaign was launched 
on the 9th. You sent it to me on the 10th. And on at that point there, when I saw it, they were at 1.5 million the next day. Their goal is a million. They, they, they exceeded that by half a million dollars. And they're almost doubling it now. And here we are recording uh, the 13th. So that is that is pretty impressive. Um, and yeah, that, that does suck for them a lot. Yeah, it's a beautiful place, man. And to see the pictures and the death toll is still going up, I believe, right now. It's at 86. Um, the entire community just, I mean, it's it's hard to understand what I'm saying, the entire community. Imagine an entire town, city, half the size of L.A. maybe, gone like that. And it, it hurts me a lot because, like I said, we were just there. We go there once a year. Um, and it's not for the resort type shit. It's the people who live there, the people who are really in the communities, the people who work there, that kind of shit there. They lost everything. So please, if you can donate to them, do so. I mean, don't get on a plane and try to go over there and help out because that ain't how you do it right now. Um, it's just donations are the key. So do that. And now we can go back to our normal conversation. <laughs> yeah. All right, so you're in Alaska. You are now a 12 Bravo officially. Now you get the chance to go blow shit up. Like, does your quality of life in the Army change? Are you, like, finally excited to be a part of it? Um, yeah. Yeah, actually, I was. Uh, I, I know a lot of people, are. Uh, they think it's cool to, like, complain about all the training and all that. But, like, uh, and, and a lot of people say, don't take yourself so seriously. Um one of my biggest regrets was like the amount of partying that I did up there instead of studying my craft and, uh, and, and being like the most lethal at it. Uh, I didn't really get this mindset until um, I spent a lot of time with the people I currently do now. Um, and, and I wish I had it back then, man, cause that's a lot of precious time wasted. And, and I mean, think about it. If, if every soldier, Every warrior took more time training instead of, you know, as soon as work got off and, and uh, went and started drinking right away, you know, like it, it would be a hundred times more lethal than we are now. At least yeah. in my um, but, you know, hey, you got you to blow off some steam somehow. And uh, I just wish I knew um, more healthy alternatives that I do now. And I, I wish that people in the military could use some of the things that I use now. Um, so what are some things that you use now? Um, I don't use it as a cure, but I, I take a lot of CBD, uh, and then, uh, Texas also passed the, uh, um, uh, medicinal marijuana. Mm -hmm. I got that and, uh, I use it as kind of like, a as just another tool. And it, it's kind of the same thing. You, you have to have the right mindset. You can't go into it thinking you're going to be Cheech and Chong every day. You gotta, you gotta find your right dose. You gotta, you know, the, the right amount that will actually work instead of put you on the couch and all that. And so you gotta, you do gotta respect it just like you would a pill and, and handle it just like you would a pill. Yeah. We definitely advocate for the use of cannabis here on this channel. Uh, right now, Kevin can't cause he's still in. Yeah. <sighs> I know a couple of shops I could tell you about if you ever come to LA. So. I'm right. definitely a fan of that. It's a million times better than alcohol. It's better for your, I mean, everything hurts your body, but it's not as bad as everything else. 
and uh, it makes you chill, man. I've never gotten into a boxing fight uh, while a little stone, man. We had yeah. some deep conversations, but no, no, no animosity. Well, and we and we, re- we recorded with a guy. Um, was that Amsler? Yep. Gage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's been a while. It's been a while, but uh, so this guy was. Uh, he was a special operations medic and an overseas contractor, and um, was doing uh, civilian medical things up in Michigan, and and uh, was 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 practicing with the uses of cannabis and various strains. And he would like meticulously document like this person has this ailment and they're using this strain. Here's what works. Here's what didn't Here's the effects, blah, blah, blah. And then would kind of move from there and then adjust, make, make adjustments as needed to where he could identify if, if this is what ails you, this is the strain for you. And on his, on a rotation, he, he wrote a book about it. He was on a, a, a rotation as a contractor handpicked by the Pentagon apparently and up in Afghanistan came across some like legitimate like Hindu Kush and was like there's no way I'm leaving this on this mountain and found a way to smuggle it back to the US where he then adapted that into the strains that he was already working with nice. and um, he last I heard he, he was uh, he was working with some company in California Northern California and was going to get his uh, some of his strains put out there. So that's really interesting. Um, like like Tyree said, I I don't have I don't like I don't um, because I, I I am still in um, and I follow the rules. But uh, I I definitely I see the benefit of it for sure. I, I see people who 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 desperately need it needed it and then started using it and to to the point where like you said like you know just finding finding out how much you need to kind of soften the blow of, of whatever it is you're processing through. Um, and then, and then function. Um, so yeah, it is, it is, it is a great tool. Um, not, not something like anything, like anything on, I don't want to say unnatural either. Cause I guess cannabis is natural. Um, it shouldn't be overly used. Just everything's always in moderation. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah moderation. That's the word. Um, here for you. <laughs> so, so CBD, uh, cannabis, um, do you, do you look at, like you said, you're an outdoorsman now. Like, do you, do you look at that as a way to, uh, kind of help a lot of that stuff too? Yes. Okay. So let me just tell you something. So I, I saw it working, uh, in real time. I, I, a long time ago when I did my first like DIY public land hunt, I kind of got to this point in life where I'm like, man, I want to hunt. You know what? I'm just going to put a call to action on Instagram. And I made this post saying that I'm going to be here at this time uh, uh, during this time period. And um, it's like archery, whitetail hunt, and uh, it's public land. This is what you need. If you're in, like, let me know. Because I was just going to show up on my own. And uh, what ended up happening is my buddy Roel, uh, he's also an infantryman. Uh, he shows up or he confirms with me and um, that he's going to go. And then before the hunt actually happens, he reaches out and he's like, Hey, I got two of my buddies coming out. And so what ended up happening is um, the guy is uh, one of his buddies that he deployed with to Iraq in 09 uh, is living in Texas. And then another guy is living in uh, 
California somewhere. I forget that guy drove all the way here from California. And, uh, I, I kind of felt like the fourth wheel to the hunt that I, you know, I put together. <laughs> um, but it was awesome, man. Cause you know, you, to see people maneuvering again, quietly, uh, sneaking in on, you know, the deer, um, it's, it's creating new memories, uh, and peaceful ones and, uh, beautiful ones. Cause you're out in nature, like fresh air, just the land is beautiful. And it's peaceful. You know, you see the sunrise, you see the sunset, if you're out there all day. Um, no one's shooting at you. Well, <laughs> you're not wearing orange. It's scary to you're going to get shot. No, it's not. Um, yeah. I think um, it's very cool that you, uh, like you said, you, you're able to take something that we've all learned and still continue that camaraderie with friends uh, in that situation. Because like you said, a lot of people don't have that good feeling about walking in a wedge in, a, in the wood line. You know, not at all. It's always going to be a bad thing, but you got to turn it into a positive, And that's something that's very important. Um, it's a good way to process uh, the things that you've done before. It's not always about war. It's uh, sometimes it's just about walking in the woods, man. And that's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. So you were, so, you know, so your second deployment, you go to Afghanistan. Um, what year was that? You were there for OEF, OEF 11. Yeah, man, that was a whole different beast. Um, you know, the most that I saw in Iraq was, um, if I remember correctly, one of the, one of the drivers of the semis we were escorting, he rolled his semi and like broke his leg and, you know, we medevaced him. Uh, you know, I got to see like that kind of pain. Um, and then, um, and then we saw like an IED stuffed in a camel's ass in like the median. But like, so that rack to me was just kind of like a lot of hard work. And then, uh, Afghanistan, like it was a big wake up call. Man. Uh, our first mission, we lost, four guys uh they were killed two other guys were sent home for injuries um man that was that was tough that was uh, uh melton tucker presley were were our guys and uh staff sergeant self was from the other unit and he was actually scheduled to leave and go home the next day and mm. i don't think that he was even supposed to be on that mission i think he stepped in I feel like he just had more experience and he was just kind of a leader, like stepping in, like, yeah, I got this. You go, we're about to leave. Like, I'll take this. And, uh, man, I'm sorry that happened to, to all of them. Uh, after that, we got uh, shut down as a platoon. We didn't have enough guys to conduct route clearance or vehicles. And then, um, man, that was probably like the biggest explosion I think I've seen in person yeah they they had like been deep burying uh uh forget what, what they call yeah deep burying they basically dug this tunnel from the farm fields to the highway and then planted it underneath the culvert so when we inspected the culvert uh, it was all good you know it looked perfect nothing looked suspicious and uh man they, they got hit and uh it was like the whole highway minus the shoulders. It was just this massive crater, dude. It's probably like 20 mm-hmm. feet deep and it was just massive. The whole entire highway was just one big crater. It was crazy. Dude, that is wild. 
we didn't see anything like that in Iraq. Like <clears throat> we had IEDs, you know, like not the nothing with that kind of destruction. Not from them anyway. You know? No, not at all. We we had what's in our arsenal, and we were causing all kinds of destruction with that. But I mean, at best, we would see daisy chained IEDs every five, ten meters. You know, five or six of them daisy chained together. But you know, they they're not causing that kind of damage. I think the biggest IED I remember coming across was uh was two one five fives and two one oh fives uh linked together. That EOD came out came out and put some C four on and dispatched, but nothing like that. Good lord. That's a fucking massive explosion. I mean, like there's no getting away from that when that goes off. No. No, it threw their RG pretty far. It kind of blew everything off the RG and um Threw someone through the hatch that was closed, broke it open. Like it was pretty bad. Wow. Huh. And so that was right in the early days of your deployment. That was our first mission. Yeah. Good lord. Way to set the tone. You know what I'm saying? Like, what is and what is the feeling after that? Like, because you're you know you're there for another you know how long was that deployment? A year. Yeah. Yeah. Damn. So your first mission out, you you got another year of this. Yeah, I it kind of um, I don't know if you guys you guys have probably felt this, but like it felt like there was this switch that flipped, and you're kind of concerned about your safety, and then all of a sudden you're like bloodthirsty, and you don't even care what happens, and you're just going and, and you're trying to do what you need to do. It's kind of yeah. like as soon as I saw that man, like yeah. I had like a humongous, I remember just like feeling this tremendous amount of adrenaline. And then I remember trying to use a blue force tracker screen. Cause I, I was the driver for the medevac vehicle. And um, I had actually wanted to be up front and I'm getting told, no, you're going to be the driver for the medevac. And, uh, you know, fortunately and unfortunately I got, you know, put as the driver. And so when that was all happening, someone, I forget who, but someone came up and was like, Hey, check this on the screen. Uh, I remember like my hands, like shaking, just like, it was uncontrolled. I was like, you know, like I didn't, I didn't know how to control it. It was the first time I'd felt feeling like this. And uh, I remember thinking, why the fuck isn't the screen working? <laughs> my hands are all like fucking shaking real bad. And, uh, and I, I still get a, uh, still feel you know something just explaining that day right now and uh yeah i feel it i'm i'm sitting here watching for anyone who can't see Derek looks like jason momoa in the face he's fucking a burly looking dude man he's got a massive beard he's got big hair handsome guy and but as he was telling that story you could look into his eyes like I'm looking into your face and it was like you were reliving that whole thing all over again. Even though it was just like that. It didn't take very long for you to explain it, but it was like every single... It, when you think about that, you really, literally, it was like you relived it and we just watched you sit through it. And You uh, were there, yeah. You yeah. were there. That's tough. Um, <clears throat> so we get back and uh, everyone's pretty emotional. Um, and they, then they 
sat my platoon in a room with a bunch of chaplains and you know, you don't know what you don't know. And, uh, there, I think there was a couple of new ones in there and it, it felt very, um, it didn't feel organic or genuine or sincere. It felt like they were just reading off some piece of paper instead of just talking to us like we're humans and we all are. And, uh, that was kind of upsetting, but you know, whatever it's in the past and everyone learns and everyone's got to learn eventually. And, uh, it's not always pretty when you do. So um, the base had a uh, kind of like a send off ceremony. Um, they actually waited for us to get out of that meeting and uh, everyone was on the flight line. There was Afghans there. There were Romanians. Uh, and then of course our guys, you're um, all there kind of saluted them as they were carried to the Black Hawk and flown away. Uh, and then after that, they, they kind of shut our platoon down for a while because we just didn't have the manpower to do missions. Uh, and so, you know, in being in a sapper company, almost everyone there is a combat engineer. But then you have like your construction engineers as well. And so we essentially did a bunch of cross training with those guys, learned how to use like the heavy machinery. Um, and then from there, we got moved. Uh, so that, that was, Fob Logman, and then we got moved from Logman to uh, Massengar, um, and that was that was an interesting short time there. Uh, pretty cool. Uh, we moved there, and then I think it was our first morning. Um, I woke up, and there was just like this shit ton of gunfire and explosions, and so I came out of the tent um, like locked and loaded, ready to go. <laughs> funny shit right there's these uh the canadians were there and uh, they're a bunch of dudes like no shirts on on their strikers like fucking yeah fuck yeah i'm like what the fuck is happening right all i'm hearing is a shit ton of gunfire shit ton of explosions and so we're kind of like at the top of this small mountain and uh i see them looking this way and they're cheering and i look and i see people around the, the fob cheering too and then i look out and uh uh there's like an a10 coming down just freaking annihilating this compound dude. just in front of uh there was like a small river and then there was a bridge and it was like off to the left a little bit and i think um i think it was fob wilson it was another like massive fob close to massimgar I mean, I just remember watching that, um, and it was pretty cool, you know, unfortunate, uh, humans got to do that shit, but yeah, it was like a pretty badass experience. And, um, I, I remember we were just kind of there for a few days and then we were kind of just working out, eating food and I guess decompressing. And then, uh, and then they restructure our whole company and they switched me from first platoon to fourth platoon. And then I forget what base it was called, but it was like a fob that was right outside Kandahar airfield. And it was super small. We were there. And then we started doing route clearance convoys into, uh, into Panjway, which is, a uh, 
apparently it's like the spiritual birthplace of the Taliban. And that was, that was pretty, that was pretty weird because they didn't really mess with us for a while. I think they were studying us. And then, um, on August 23rd, 2011, that's when I got blown up. And, uh, I was a, a Husky vehicle operator. Uh, for those of you that don't know what that is, it looks kind of like a giant grasshopper. Um, and then it's got these massive panels on the front. Um, and, uh, you lead the convoys. You're essentially looking into the ground for, uh, anomalies and, uh, and then you mark it or you call people up and, uh, they'll, they'll come market. It. it just depends on like what gear you had on your truck at the time. Um, so, uh, we were doing, we we're doing a route clearance patrol into Panjway and we got new orders uh, that we were going to do a foot patrol with the army infantry and uh, some Afghan counterparts. And so we pulled into, uh, I don't, I don't remember what cop it was. We pulled, it was super small. We pulled in there did a little powwow. And then uh, when I went to lead the convoy back out of the place, my steering broke. And so uh, had to stop the convoy. I, Try jumping into a, a first-gen striker. Uh, at that time, those were getting ripped up pretty bad from even small blasts, especially if they were underneath them. And then it was like right in the time Army was just transitioning from first-gen to second-gen. Gen 2 had the V-holes. And uh, my unit knew about that. And they're like, no, fuck that. Get out of that truck. Get in the RG-31. And then uh, got in that vehicle as a dismount. And then it was like 20 or 30 minutes later, on a mission, like, or from what I can remember, uh, it was like 20 or 30 minutes later, I had, we got hit. Um, it was, uh, set off by the enemy. And at first we didn't, we thought it was something and, you know, we, we rolled over it with our mind rollers, uh, you know, investigated it. We we're like, Oh, I don't think it is. And then, uh, the guy behind me, the guy in the first, um, Further seat back in the vehicle, uh, Stephen Jackal, Sergeant Stephen Jackal. He uh, he confirmed that it was a bomb, and then by that time he said, "All right, guys, pull forward." It was like right after that, like uh, the enemy set it off on us, and uh, yeah, that led me to the long journey I've been on. About how far away from you uh, were the blast? <clears throat> yeah, where yeah, where'd that happen in relation to you? Yeah. Uh right underneath my seat. Jesus. Yeah. And there's a there's a photo. I gotta look for it, but there's like a man, it looks like there's like this massive hole uh in the armor. And you know, I I, I was dude, I was so fucked up and high from the drugs, like the only thing I can remember um was like the blur because I was looking out the left side of the vehicle because my gunner was facing right. So I'm watching this tree line, you know, to see if anyone starts shooting at us. And no one did. And then all of a sudden it was this blur. And then I like opened my eyes and it was really quiet. Everything was dusty. My helmet was on my feet. Um, and uh, I remember getting just so fucking pissed. I was so salty. I was like, fuck no, these motherfuckers did not get me fuck these assholes right like super pissed and they got me you know um 
but I remember doing that. And then there was like, I remember a lot of ringing in my ears. And then I remember kind of like being the first person that kind of got their bearings. So I was looking around and, and it was almost like everyone was just asleep. And I was like, what the fuck is going like, You know, you're so disoriented. And, uh, um, I remember people started coming to and, uh, three of the five of us got severely, uh, severely injured. Um, our gunner, Brandon Elliott, uh, really solid dude. He, uh, he broke his legs. He was trapped by the door. Uh, he was kind of like sitting on his broken legs. It was pretty shitty. Um, I remember, uh, trying to calm him down, like yelling at him, trying to, you know, tell him, Hey, dude, don't worry about it. Soon enough, we're going to be on the beach drinking like margaritas. Just chill. And I remember I didn't know I was injured until I tried to get up and give a, uh, Sergeant Jackal first aid. I remember seeing his femur sticking out and, um, uh, I remember trying to get up and that's when I felt like this fire through my body. Uh, I, I fractured my C2, my L3, my L5, uh, broke my left femur, uh, had shrapnel in my left hamstring. Um, everything from like right below my calf muscle on my left leg was shattered up in like, like the ball joints of your ankle were shattered. Um, one of the ball joints actually blew off. Uh, a couple of my middle foot bones broke. Uh, my left foot exploded. Um, and then my right ankle, uh, it broke as well. And then I had a TBI and eventually, you know, diagnosed with PTSD. Man. Yeah. I, I couldn't get up and, uh, you know, uh, speaking, uh, thinking back to, you know, you telling your, your brand new soldiers, like all the war stories, uh, my platoon sergeant, I, I remember him saying, um, we were all kind of like shooting the shit, you know, late at night once. And he was like, yeah, of all the deployments I've done, um, I've never seen anyone put their own tourniquet on. And like, I heard that and I tried putting my tourniquet on the wrong way, like an idiot don't do this. It's fucking painful. <laughs> it's really painful. Um, and so I remember like trying to reach all the way down and like everything was hurting so bad. And then, uh, I was like, fuck this. And I opened it up, put it on. Um, and I, you know, I could feel like my legs swelling and, uh, I put it on and, uh, man, that was, that was really painful. Um, and then I remember like calming Elliot down. And then I remember trying to just, just I, I just remember being a medic telling me like, dude, don't like, don't freak out when you get fucked up, like stay calm or otherwise it'll bleed to death faster. So I'm like, okay, I'm leaning up against the window, like just fucking chill, dude, just chill, just chill. And I'm like, man, these motherfuckers need to hurry up. <laughs> and dude, they were, they were on their shit, man. They're on the great game for real. Cause I think. I think from the time of getting blown up and getting everyone out of the vehicle, I think it was like 20 minutes and then getting us medevaced, like the amount of things that had to line up perfectly, like all lined up. It was amazing. I didn't actually think about that until um, I was talking to someone else at this gym I work at now. 
And you're like, man, think about all the things I had to line up for you to be here. And I was like, whoa, this big tidal wave. So yeah, man, I, I remember that. And then uh, I remember Steven trying to get out of the back hatch. Uh, everyone else was gone. And then they came for me. Um, and I, I remember I knew my leg was broken. I didn't know how bad, but um, I remember uh, telling Patrick and Seacrest, two guys pulled me out. It's like, hey, my leg's broken. Like, you're going to have to help me get on this chair. I and mean, then you're gonna have to pull me out because my legs like destroyed. And uh, um, I remember, don't I? I remember getting handed down off the vehicle, and then I had a nightmare once where I think I remembered it to where when I was getting pulled out, like my leg folded, and uh, I remember waking up and screaming from that. Like I've had night terrors um, for quite a while, a couple years after. Um, after getting blown up, um, I'm sitting then, here squirming, man. I can't. My, my dude, <laughs> it was no joke. I'm so sorry, man. This is this is some fucking heavy <laughs> stuff. Like I can't even sit still. My my gut is. Uh, I I need a break. <laughs> I'm not even joking, man. Um, give me a minute. You guys keep talking. I gotta go get some water because I gotta. I need a second because I'm sitting here visualizing everything that's going on and it's fucking heavy stuff. Um, like you said, it's a miracle to have you back here because it's as a, a bunch of circumstances that have to line up perfectly for you to to get here. And and we, me and Kevin, we talk about this all the time. Like everything happens for a reason, even though it's fucking a terrible thing that happens. The outcome happens because everyone else got together and they fucking worked and I'm glad they got to, to get together to work for you but man that's fucking that's intense man I, I'm serious I, I'll be right back you guys uh, give me a sec so no I it, it is I it, man let me get my words together real quick too because I'm I'm coming in the same boat as I like I don't think people understand like like what this is what is going on here right like i mean okay i'm surely after after listening to you tell that like they understand what's going on here like i'm, I'm honestly kind of at a, a loss for words so in iraq in 04 like, we we didn't we didn't lose a lot of people we 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 had in our company we had one one k it was actually fratricide we had a couple purple hearts um we were mech infantry in an urban environment in the early days of the iraq war right like we had bradley's 25 millimeter bushmaster cannon on it like you know what I mean? Like our rules of engagement were if, if it looks like they could be a bad guy, shoot them. So, you, you know, it was a different, it was a different vibe altogether. Um, and so, you know, it's not to say that we didn't see that kind of stuff, but it was typically inflicted upon the enemy. And uh, we weren't really too concerned with, you know, how they got patched up if they put a tourniquet on correctly and, and all of that stuff. But I do find it really interesting. Um, and it says a lot about a person to go through that. And before you even realize that you're impacted, that you're injured, you're checking on other people. Like you're making sure that everyone else there is okay. Um, and the fact that you had this, like this, this 
in, in, in that moment, this, this level of clarity, I guess you could say to like, okay, I remember when Sergeant so-and-so said, I've never seen somebody put on a tourniquet. I remember when this doc said to maintain your calm in those situations because it can increase your heart rate and you can increase your, your blood full, uh, blood, um, flow for your, uh, if you have like arterial bleeding, um, so to, to, to be in that situation, cause I mean, I can, you know, it's, it's hard to put yourself there if you've never been through it, if you've never been wounded, if you've never seen an explosion, but it's hard to say, oh yeah, no, I would totally remember these things. <laughs> you know, when's the last time, do you, do you remember a time in CLS training or out in the field where you're like, okay, if you happen to be in a vehicle and it hits an IED and you get your leg blown up, what's the first thing you do? Like that's not, that's very specific training that we just don't do. So for you to like have that in those moments, like the, the you talk about when you were in Alaska and you wish you had spent more time training and honing your craft, like it takes a level of a high level of training to do what you did anyway. So, I mean, you, this is, it. maybe this is the wrong wording, but like you made the best, you did the best things. You did the right things in that situation. You know, you, 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 you made sure everybody was good. You maintained your calm. You applied, um, a tourniquet, you know, your immediate first aid. Um, you did all the things that you could do within your power. That's incredible. Um, especially for somebody who's, who's gone through that. You know, all right, I'm back. Um, Jesus. I don't really think, man. I just remember, like, it was just like this voice in my head that brought those two things up. And, and when you see your buddy, like, freaking out, like, it makes you feel, makes you feel something uh, real heavy. And, um, man, just sucks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can remember on patrol, one of our dudes got shot in the back. Um, he's a purple heart and, uh, it was a grazing wound. We didn't know that at the time. It was a perfect shot too, man. Like the bullet came in, in between his shoulder and his body armor, like that small space just wedged right in there, uh, drove right across his shoulder blade and then lodged into the soft Kevlar of the, of the body armor. Like a one in a billion shot. Right where it said aim point too. Yeah. Yeah, It was crazy. Incredible. Um, Obviously in the moment we didn't know that that's what happened. We just knew that he got shot and that, you know, it's time to go, you know, kill everything. And you, you know, it, it is, you can't help. I mean, okay. In those situations, you have to revert back to your training. You can't sit there and dwell on what just happened. Um, man, so-and-so got shot. We wonder if they're okay, blah, blah, blah. You still got to scan your sector. You are still in danger. Um, and so for them to get to you guys, get y'all out of there, and get y'all, like, uh, medevaced out, like, in a short time frame, man, like, that's just that's just soldiers doing soldier things. That's just... You love to hear it, and I and you you hate to hear it in those circumstances. You know what I mean. You uh, yeah. take your training seriously and take yourself seriously, man. And if that's yeah, no, and, and you're right though, because you go back to Alaska. We go back to when he and I were in Germany. 
we we did the same thing, man. We spent a ton of times um, touring all the bars in Schweinfurt and Würzburg and Frankfurt and Nuremberg and wherever else. But like, you know, could we have been taking our training more seriously when we were in the field? Were we really taking our our training serious? Was I really trying to shoot better? Was I really trying to like maneuver better? You know what I mean? Or could I have done a little bit more? Um, yeah. Could I pay a, a, a bit more attention? And uh, it's funny because when you were talking about that, it's like we don't really, in some cases, we don't really, you know, d- take it uh, serious. But when you consider what our job is, you would think we would take it serious. <laughs> right? That's fucking hilarious. <laughs> Oh yeah! If I don't do my my job right, I could die. My buddy could die. But uh, fucking, you know, I'm a 19 year old oh, dumbass. God, that's you know what the I'm saying? truth, man. Okay, let's take another shot. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um. Fuck. There even there were even times in Iraq where we were like, you know, but that was probably due more to complacency or whatever. Um. <clears throat> shit. Okay. So end result. Um, you get out of there. You, you, I assume you're, you're, you're flowing back to, to launch tool at some point over in Germany and then probably ultimately back to the U S at, at Walter Reed. Mm-hmm. Oh no. Okay. So I had, I had four surgeries in country, uh, and then two more in launch tool. And then I had, um, so I went, I forget if I was in Bagram or Kandahar. I don't know. I was. Dude, I was so high. Like, I woke in and up, out, in and out. I got my purple heart. I went back to sleep. I woke up. I was getting loaded on a giant plane. I'm assuming it's a C-17. Fell asleep. Um, and then I remember driving on some highway in Germany. And then I remember getting woken up and getting a, a, a sponge bath. And then, like, after that... Uh, like seeing my, uh, there was like two other guys in my hospital room. One, the guy next to me was, and then, um, I remember like getting kind of talked to by this officer. I think he was one of the surgeons. Um, thanks for not hammering me, sir. Cause, uh, he basically told me before the surgery, like, Hey, you might not wake up with your leg. And uh, I, whatever I'll say, it. Uh, I basically was like, sir, if I don't wake up with my leg, I will fucking hop around this hospital looking for you and I will fucking kill you. <laughs> and he's like, I'm going to chunk that up to the morphine, man. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> like it's kind of hard when getting told someone is going to chop your leg off, you know, like, uh, <laughs> sorry, sir. Um, thanks for uh, understanding and uh, letting that one slide. Um. So I remember that, and then uh, I remember doing one of this therapy where, like, the nurse, like, my leg had so much trauma in it, it, it basically, like, stuck straight. It wouldn't bend at the knee anymore, and uh, my knee was fine, and uh, it was, like, weird, you know? Um, and uh, so she was, like, bending on it, and eventually it worked itself out. Uh, and then I went from launch tool Germany to uh, Fort Lewis, Madigan Army Hospital. Had some great surgeons there. And then I had five surgeries there. Um, and then I opted to uh, 
the army had like this policy at the time. I don't know if it still does, but if you're going to get retired, you could retire from the base closest to home. That way your family has, it has it easier coming to and from to visit you. Uh, you know, your support network's a little bit stronger. Uh, so I went to uh, Fort Campbell because home was, you know, Chicago area. And uh, I was only in Campbell about a month and finally went home. And like the first day I was walking up the stairs, I broke my ankle. I didn't think I broke it. I slipped on the stair and um, landed. And I was like, oh, shit, that hurt. The next day, my ankle was like four times the size it was. It was like red and super hot and just severely swollen. Uh, what ended up happening is I had a massive tissue and bone infection. So I had two two emergency surgeries there. Yeah, it was either two or three. They basically cleaned out my leg, and there was like these big holes in it. Um, and then, so you still have your leg at this point? Yeah. So I had my leg maybe eighteen and nineteen months. And then, so, yeah. and, and at, at this point, before the breaking your ankle, you're you're already at ten plus surgeries for reconstruction and all that. And then you break your ankle and you have two or three more. Oh, we're not even done yet. Yeah. <laughs> kind of like halfway through. Uh, well, a little bit more than halfway. Um, so thankfully the, one of the, one of the resident surgeons there was like best friends with um, the guy that ran the orthopedic surgery department in uh, at Fort Sam. He, they, they, I think they went to school or they did time together. Um, but he said, Hey man, uh, I know you were talking about like the ideal brace and he's like, funny thing you say that, like somebody I know like runs the orthopedic surgery down in Fort Sam where they do those braces. He's like, if you want to do that, you're going to have to move there. And I was like, too easy, sir. Like, let's go. You know? And, uh, so I got moved down to Fort Sam in June or July of 2012. And then uh, I got retired out of there in 14, but I went through even more surgeries. I, uh, I'm the type of person that kind of goes hard when I work out. And so in physical therapy, I broke my tibia and fibula riding the bike. My, my, uh, yeah. Damn, man. <laughs> oh, fuck. It's so gnarly how it happened to I was literally just riding a bike. The sit, you know, the sit ones, um, and like the screens in front of you. And, uh, my left foot like slipped off the pedal and I went to time it. And, uh, when I hit it, I heard like a crack and like, uh, at that time I'd been like working out pretty hard with a lot of pain and I knew, okay, when I get to this pain level, all right, it's about that time to like chill and go back to the barracks room and just lay down, elevate my leg and all that. So I was like, all right, that's enough for today. <laughs> I got up and I walked out of there. And like, even the therapists were like, yo, like, what's going on with your leg? Cause my leg was like, instead of being straight, it was kind of like crooked. It was bent forward a little. And I couldn't really tell from my angle. That's fucking crazy. And, um, <laughs> they were like, you know, um, is, are you good, dude? And I was like, yeah, I'm good, man. It's just a long day in the gym. And they're like, oh, okay, <laughs> you're walking on it. Well, it was not good. Uh, my bones basically fractured completely across, and, like, they were they were pretty jagged. And so 
it was like kind of like that and the jacket was holding it and uh i had kind of like learned how to walk pretty smoothly without um without applying too much pressure on my left side and uh so that kind of saved me but the next morning the pain was like still like 100 out of 10 so i was like all right i'm going to the er and uh as soon as they took the x-rays, they're like, hey, we need to put you in surgery, like, right now, because your leg is broken. Like, I don't know how you did this. Uh, um, and I, you know, I explained it to them. And so I had more surgeries. Uh, I, had, I had a total of, like, two uh, metal frames installed on my leg. Uh, the first one was on my femur. And these are external frames that are, like, drilled into your bone. And they're coming out of your leg. Right. And, uh, so I had one on my femur and then, uh, a bunch of them on my lower leg, um, getting the bones like back into the correct position and keeping it there. Uh, and then that was the first one in the very beginning. And then after I broke my leg again, I got this, uh, uh we call them the halo frames. And, um, yeah. Yeah. I know about those, man. I've seen those before. Ah. They're, they're super gnarly. Um, they're drilled into your bones. And the gnarliest part for that was I had one like drilled into my toes and my foot. So there was like these pins going in the tips of each one of my toes, and uh, and you could walk on, it, which was fuck that. Jesus, yeah, no, I'm out. Just, just, at, dude, you can describe that to me. I'm like, you know what? You could just have the whole leg. Take the whole thing. Get the fuck out of here. Oh, drill man. things into me. Fuck out of here. God. It was definitely something. Hey. Brutal. All right. Well, on, hey, well, wait a second. Again, y'all. All right. <laughs> that is. I'm yeah, sitting here fun. listening. Again, I've seen some really bad things before. Um, I, I've uh, done some really bad things to people before. But the recovery, man, the surgery after surgery, I mean, you have scaffolding on your leg. And that's a lot to endure, man. That's a lot to mentally get through, not just the pain, but you got to relearn everything. And, man, hats off to you because that's fucking... I can't even sit through the story because I feel like I'm gonna throw up. But you, you had to sit through everything. I feel oh, like a, I feel like a weenie. But honestly, I was good while you were talking about breaking your your tib fib and all that stuff. But as soon as you started talking about drilling things into your toes, dude, they made movies. I think they was in Hostel. as oh, <laughs> a as a torture technique, man. Oh my god! Listen, and I gotta tell you, I got a pedicure once, once. <laughs> That shit hurt. All right, so I got I got sensitive little toes. Uh, fuck, man. Just everything yeah, about no, the for whole, real, everything, dude, like, man. Mm. The shattered foot with. Ugh. It was a whoa, man. It was an interesting time. So it's <laughs> a good way of putting it, I guess. Yeah, that's a hell of a way to put it. That's a fucking hell of a way to put it, man. Um, but you still got more surgeries to go, right? After they yeah, tortured your toes. So they, they put that in, um, and then when that came out, I actually had two, um, like, I got two more infections, and I had to live with, a like, a pick line in my uh, in my bicep right here. 
Uh, and basically it's like a massive IV that like goes, uh, to right outside your heart. And so you're sleeping with this thing on 24 seven for, for a long time and, and, um, for weeks, sometimes months. And then you're constantly getting fed antibiotics. Um, so I had a total of 19 surgeries and then the 18th one, um, I kind of got to this point where I'm like, look, I'm done being a fucking professional, like hospital patient. I'm fucking sick of this shit. Like I need to get on with my life. And, uh, I started talking to my therapist, uh, PT and nurse case manager and just my, my medical team. And, and, uh, I remember one of the guys was like, all right, look, here's your options. We can wait for this infection to go away. We can go through the ideal brace program. Um, see if your leg will continue to break or not break. Uh, I mean, at one point, dude, I had like 26 screws and, and two plates in my left leg holding it all together. So there was just a shit ton of holes. And so it was, it was really compromised. And, uh, and then they were like, yeah, we can, we can do this brace program, wait for your infection to go and heal and, or we can just cut it off and move the fucking on. Yeah. Okay. Um, he's like, but look, once you, once you do the, the ladder, like there's no going back, like not even mentally, like you cannot fucking regret it for like one second. And I was like, okay, I'm like, yeah, let's, let's cut it off. Like I need, I need to get the fuck on with life. And because I, I addressed my healing as what is the fastest way I can get back to the battlefield, you know, even with the PTSD. And at the time I didn't even know PTSD was like a disqualifying thing. Still, you're still trying to get back out there. Fuck yeah, man. I mean, After all that, you're like, oh yeah. Give me, give oh, me a robot leg. Send me back to war. My my biggest thing is like, I I wish I had more time. Oh man. Service and I and I wish I had more time to do more things and, you know, I'm surrounded by a lot of combat veterans and just veterans in general where I'm at now, and I hear, you know, we all give each other shit, but man, people go through some really cool ass unique experiences. I'm like, man, that would have been so fun to go through, like. Even yeah. just war or wartime, and uh, so that was kind of my mindset. Um, I just got to ask real quick before you go on: Are you sitting in a chair, or are you sitting on your giant balls? <laughs> <laughs> that is insane. Like you go through this nineteen surgeries, uh, <sighs> and you're still like, and and physical therapy and breaking bones and. More hardware in your leg than at Lowe's, Home Depot, Jaegers combined, and you're still like, "How do I get back over there?" Yeah, all that. Like, so seriously, like, what? How, what are you off. sitting on? Uh, right now? Good lord! Uh, <laughs> a chair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like how you had to check. They're like, "Yeah, it's a chair." <laughs> the balls are in front of me. Yeah. yeah. All right. So, um, life. Without what now? What is what is the, the? It's not an easy thing to decide to say, "Hey, take this leg off," or part of this leg off. Because I believe is it below or above the knee? Below. Okay. Um. So to make that decision alone is everything, and now you have to live with that decision. Um. Yeah. Less surgeries, I guess, but what is life now? 
Uh, I would say, man, it's significantly better. Mm. Um, so funny, funny stories. I grew up in the Chicago area and house music was created there in the mid eighties. And so it's, it's on the radio stations. There's DJs all the time. And as a hobby, I would, uh, I would do that, uh, in the barracks room. Right? We'd be cleaning weapons. I'd bust out the DJ gear, open my barracks room door. We'd all gather around my room, clean weapons and shit, play music. And then as soon as, you know, work was over, I'd be blasting tunes in the barracks. Sorry to uh, my fellow homies that uh, didn't like it. Thanks for putting up with me. <laughs> um, but so when I when I got close to retirement, my leadership was like, hey, look, you know, your medical appointments are slowing down. Uh, you got a lot of time. You need to find a job at least to like check the box while you're in. You're going to get retired. You know, you're not probably not going to need a job. So I was like, all right, I'll be a DJ. And, uh, you know, my leadership is combat arms. And they're like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> and I was like, no, 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 I'll prove this shit to you right now. Like I got, I got like thousands of dollars worth of DJ gear in my barracks room right now. Like, and they're like, all right, let's go. So I, I played for them for, it was like 10 or 15 minutes maybe. And, uh, and, uh, they gave me the green light to do it. And so I started showing up to this local club called the falls, San Antonio, I miss that club, some solid people out there. Um, and I, I just started talking to, they had a, like EDM nights on Thursdays and I'd go out there and be like, Hey man, can I just open? I'll, I'll do this for free. Like, just let me open, just play some music from like nine to 10. And so he's like, all right, you know, show up next week and, you know, bring your music. And, uh, so I showed up and uh, got some people to dance, which is very rare at that time in San Antonio. And, um, uh, cause EDM is like very, or was very small, uh, in San Antonio, you know, compared to like hip hop and country, uh, and like rock and all that. And so he kept inviting me back out and that eventually, that eventually turned into me playing later time slots, um, which eventually turned into like me headlining local shows. Uh, I got to, um, I, I had a bunch of residencies throughout the town. If you don't know what that is, it's, uh, Basically, like, you're the fucking DJ. Like, you're the head motherfucker, right? And it's your night and your party, basically. And uh, and it, that was cool. Uh, it didn't really, like, go too great at the residencies. It always did better at, like, the local shows. Uh, just because residencies are typically, like, the industry people showing up. Um, and since EDM was so small, it wasn't too many. Um, but I also got to open up for, like, a shit ton of world famous artists uh and the biggest show i got to play was um ultimate music experience i think it was in 2014 and that was in schlitterbahn um that was in uh south padre island that was like i think a 15,000 person festival and i was the last local artist uh that played right before slander uh the chain smokers and then steve aoki so it was like it went from like thursday night at 9 p.m to to that and then uh at that time i was i was not really addressing my mental health appropriately um i was kind of fed up with the va they kept switching my therapists every few months and then uh i i kind of just said fuck this i'm out like i'll go seek healing somewhere else and um which essentially uh, landed me where I am now, uh, dealing with the people I deal with. But uh, 
I was, I was really toxic back then and I, I had to remove myself from all of that, man. Um, so it was, it was fun while it lasted. <laughs> Super fun. Awesome. This is a completely different life than I did not com- see that combat engineer in Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've done some pretty interesting things, man. That's wild <laughs> as fuck, man. I didn't expect the command yeah, to a, say spin on the ones and twos, and you can <laughs> you can carry you. That's a whole last left turn, man. Fuck yeah, yeah. yeah. that's yeah, fucking yeah. awesome, though. Like fifteen thousand people from from hey, can I just roll? Can I just spin for an hour? Yeah, that's fucking well, and, huge. When, hey, when I saw your when you you sent your email and you're like, this is where you're gonna e- email me at, and I was like, DJ. I was like, is that what he goes by? Maybe that's like DJ is his first name, Derek James or something. Oh, no. Maybe he's not creating a, a new email account, you know. <laughs> um, okay, so, all right. So you're DJing. You you say, well, shit's not going the way I needed to go in my mental health realm. And you uh, you exit that program, that, that stage of your life, and you you get to where you're going now. So what what's going on there and i i assume that's where we're, that's where we currently are yeah. yeah so at that time um i got into uh, into djing i was also getting into sled hockey um my physical therapist was one of the coaches and we were both blackhawks fans and so we would be talking about hockey during pt and he kept like, dude, you need to come out to, you need to come play with us. And uh, I'm like, man, I don't know anything about, you know, sled hockey. And he's like, well, it's the same thing as, as hockey. You're just in a sled and you're propelling yourself with these two small sticks that got ice picks on them and you're holding the blade. And then when you shoot, you just slide your hand down and shoot. And it is hard, man. It's fucking hard. <laughs> um, we, um, we ended up actually winning, um, the national championship in 2014 uh, in the tier one league. And that's the league with all the Paralympians and shout out to freaking USA hockey and all my old team members. Cause they got a dynasty going on right now. Yeah. Yeah. They're kicking some ass. So respect dudes. Uh, I was not as good as them. <laughs> I was like, I was getting, I was starting to get all right, you know, cause it, it I feel like it is definitely a steep learning curve, uh, especially if you're not always playing it. But um, but I, I got out of that, and then, you know, I was in a really, really, really dark place. Um, just, like, kind of avoiding, like, everything, everyone. Um, I, would, I would seek healing. Like, you know, there's these events all over the country. There's so many nonprofits now. Uh, that's kind of the route I went. So I would just be at home, um, isolating, smoking a shit ton of weed, uh, like a lot. I'm talking like I had a triple percolator bong, actually multiple. They all broke. Um, I'd be like ripping on that thing all day long, you know, fucking off, just kind of avoiding uh, dealing with shit. And because I was very discouraged. Uh, by the VA, you know, how do you, how do you get past the first event when that's all they ask you about every single appointment? And then a month later, it's somebody else and you're restarting the whole fucking process over again. It's like, well, this is why we don't fucking get any help. Cause you guys keep fucking us, you know, like 
there's no time to actually build a relationship, become comfortable with people and then, and like move forward. You know, it's always the same first thing every single time. And so since then I haven't really dealt with the VA for counseling. I've, uh, I've actually gone to different organizations, um, which is awesome. And for anyone that's active duty, uh, military first responder, I encourage you to seek organizations like this out. But I, like I, at the time they were called 22 kill. They're now called one tribe. They basically give you six counseling sessions for free. And then every one after that is like 20 bucks. And then your counselors are either retired military first responder or a family member of military first responder. So they completely understand or like have a way better understanding than the average Joe out, you know, out on the street. So I just, uh, man, it was a couple years of just darkness, man. Just, Going on these surf trips uh, with Operation Surf. God bless those people, man. They're freaking awesome. Um, and uh, man, it's hard to remember that time. It was just, like, just so freaking high the whole time. Just trying to numb everything. And um, so, yeah, I would be isolating or I would be seeking a trip with a nonprofit, trying to get advice from people who, in my opinion, like actually give a shit. Like they have all the time in the world to do whatever it is they want, but they're here right now, uh, like breathing love and, and, and life into me and, and trying to give me advice about how to move forward. And so I, I, I did a lot of that. And then uh, 2017 rolls around and I'm with my ex-girlfriend, um, Man, uh, I, I definitely put her through some shit and kind of out of respect for, for my wife right now. And, and once that ended, like communication stopped and never got a chance to say sorry. So if, uh, if you ever see this, I'm really sorry for putting through putting you through uh, all that horrific shit. Sorry about that. Um, man, I, I, I never like was it violent with other people, I was violent towards my own property and I freaking just destroyed my house, man. And, um, I learned in therapy, like when you don't address your mental health, um, it will dictate your life without you realizing it. Uh, short fuse, you get irritated, anxiety attacks, panic attacks, whatever you want to call it. You become violent. Uh, you become an alcoholic. You turn to hard drugs, like, freaking kick doors off its hinges with your prosthetic like I did. Um, you do all sorts of stupid bullshit because you don't handle your mental health. And so I learned that the hard way. And uh, sorry, everybody. Seriously, I really am. Um, so, you know, um, we go on this vacation and I'm fucking vacationing hard, man. I am like tipsy my shades on and the water I'm in the water. The water's right here. My drink's right here. Just sipping on it, looking out into the, you know, the ocean. Uh, and uh, my ex comes running up and it's like, Hey, you need to come talk to me or you need to come to the bar. There's a guy talking to me about this gym for disabled veterans. And I was like, Oh, that sounds cool. And I'm like, I don't want to fucking work out. You know, like here's my mindset, like walking over there, hobbling and lazy ass to the bar. And, uh, um, I ended up meeting a former NFL player named David Roach. And uh, he talked to me about this gym called the Adaptive Training Foundation. 
and it's a it's this gym for disabled people, and it's here in Carrollton in the Dallas Fort Worth area. And um, you know, we're both drinking, and he's like, "Man, you know, my boy runs this gym, and and it's in Dallas. Like, are you in Texas?" I'm like, "Yeah, I'm in San Antonio." He's like, "Dude, whatever it is you do, just take take a weekend and go up there and just see what this gym is about. Just just check it out, please." And uh, so he exchanged information. And I, I thought it was like, you know, oh, we're just drunk. And, oh, we're both going to forget about this shit. No, <laughs> he was for real. And thank God for it. Cause, uh, and this is in the Cayman Islands, by the way. So like divine intervention, all the shit that had to line up. Yeah, for real, <laughs> divine intervention. And so it was like a few weeks after it, I'm driving and I get a call from David Babora, which is uh, they both played in the NFL on the Rams together. And um He's like, yo, like, I can't believe, can't believe my, my teammate in the Cayman Islands. What the hell? Like, just kind of like, uh, just super stoked. And uh, he goes, hey, you know, I got one last space in this class. You know, do you want it? He's like, our program is 10 weeks long or it's nine weeks long. And it's just, we're training our ass off for those nine weeks. And then we go on like a redeploy trip. And, uh, and then we apply the strength that we gained during class and in, in the mental clarity. And, um, you know, we got, we'll save you the spot. So I'm like, well, shit, I got nothing else with my life to do. So fuck yeah, I'm there. So I showed up, man. And I was like two, two forty seven at the time. Um, yeah, I lost like 33 pounds in that first class. And then they were like, look, man, you're doing fantastic. Your foundation is kind of being laid out. Um, you know, we really think you could do even better if you came through another class, like right away. I was like, all right, sure. Like, okay. So I did that. Went back to San Antonio for a little bit. Um, and then um, during that time, I had um, broken up with my ex. And then uh, I went... So I, I did class 10 and 11 and then there's a couple classes that passed and then I, and I redid and went back for class 15 at the new gym. And, um, it's actually where I met my wife now. And, uh, yeah, man. So I met my wife, started dating her. Um, we eventually got married to Three years later, I asked her to marry me on her two-year anniversary. Um, and then in that whole time of being at the gym, I, I kind of stuck around. And, and um, unfortunately, it was like right before, I think it was right before class 15, um, the Sergeant Stephen Jackal guy I mentioned earlier, he uh, he committed suicide. And uh, it was a really, really heavy time. Um, still is. I feel like the pain never really goes away. Just you learn how to carry it better. Be a little bit stronger. You can carry it a little bit better. Um, yeah. So that happens. And, you know, class is finished. And I'm kind of going through life. Uh, back in San Antonio, I'm like going back and forth to my girlfriend's house here in the DFW area. And, um, 
um, man. So, okay. The story shit happens is, uh, pretty funny. Shit happens in my life a lot for some reason. Um, so my wife comes and visits me in San Antonio and, uh, sorry, babe. I don't know if you don't want anyone to know this, but they're going to know. So we go out drinking and, uh, we come home and we're like, we fall asleep in front of, of the fireplace. And then it was like an hour or two later, I wake up and I hear noise and I'm like, Oh fuck. It's on like someone's breaking in. I grab my pistol. I, I, you know, throw my leg on, grab my pistol. And I'm like very slowly like maneuvering to a better position. And within like four steps, I stepped in water and, uh, my whole house, I find out when I turn the lights on, my whole house is flooded. Like my wife went to the restroom. Um, it didn't uh, go down like it should have. And if I can... Oh, man. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and when, uh... <laughs> no. It ended up being like $51,000 worth of damages. Oh, and man. Nowhere to go. Like, I would have probably gotten really sick if I stayed in the house. And uh, so she's like, well, just come stay with me. So I did. Moved some of the stuff that I had left. Um, out to the DFW with my wife and, uh, and, and stayed with her eventually got that household. Uh, and now mm-hmm. we've been together for just a little over five years in total time. Yeah. That is, yeah. I wonder if, uh, when they sold the house of like in, in, in full, like a full disclosure, they were like, so it's like water damage. Oh, did it like rain in the house or like a leak in the house? No. No, it's not, that's not what happened. No. Well, <laughs> thankfully, so it's kind of crazy because, like, um, everything got replaced. Like, all the walls, the floor, cabinets, lighting. Like, it was pretty impressive. It really did. Um, <laughs> but, man, it was, a, it was a hell of a time going through all that. Yeah. So you're married five years to now, and 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 everything's going amazing. You're down there in the in the Dallas area, kicking ass and taking names and doing all these other cool things. Um, and so you have kind of after going to the um, Adaptive Training Foundation, going through them, like you've kind of t- decided to take that up as part of like your. That's what you do now, right? You, you're a part of that. Yeah. So how that ended up happening is I I basically. I knew this community was good. Right. And I was like, you know, I need to be here. I need to be around a good, positive community. These are people that are way different than the nightlife community. Um, and I, I would be working out and, uh, they don't really allow people to do this. I don't know why they let me do it, but thanks for letting me. I would be working out when another class was there and I would be like encouraging other athletes like, yeah, fuck yeah, dude, just keep going. And then I'd be getting after it on my own. Like, and so I started seeing some trainers struggle with some other amputees that were trying to learn balance. And I surf in a snowboard, so I'm pretty good at balance. And uh, I would go up to them and like give them a couple pointers after watching them for a while. And then their athlete would get it, and, and they would be able to balance using their prosthetic too. And I was like, man, I can fucking do this shit. Like. I've done, I've been an athlete my whole life, uh, you know, learned how to weight lift, uh, took, I mean, took class for it. Like I've been an athlete since like three years old, like, fuck, I don't do it. 
bring it on. Like, let's do this, you know? And, um, and so I told them, I was like, Hey, or I asked them, I was like, Hey, can I, can I be a trainer here? And they were like, yeah, we'll put you in, uh, as a support trainer for a few classes. And, and if you like it and you, and you feel comfortable, like, you know, you can become a head trainer here. And I was like, all right. And so I did a few classes. Um, and, uh, I loved it, man. I fucking loved it. Cause that place is like, there's never a shortage of like witnessing miracles there. Like people who have uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome, um, which is your um, immune system attacking your nervous system, and uh, and basically like it can paralyze you, uh, it can shut your lungs, it can stop your lungs from working, your heart from working, like it can kill you. And so there's a guy in my class, um, Trent Fielder. He had that or has it, and. Uh, he came in in a chair or he was using these like electronic powered uh, braces to help him walk. And by the end of that class, he walked for the first time since getting it to his wife. Uh, and now he does like Ironman competitions. That's so cool. Yeah. yeah. Like people like that show up to this place. And um, so, you know, uh, I became the head trainer or a head trainer there. And, um, you know, I got to work with a bunch of really cool people. Uh, I've, I've been able to work with um, my buddy Desmond. He is he's this incredible artist, but he doesn't even have hands. His hands never fully developed. Uh, and this guy can paint like portraits. Like it's it's incredible. Um, trained a, a six year old gentleman, Ron. He uh, had a stroke. 60 he's in realty uh, he's a realtor and um while he was still having a stroke he like closed this major deal in the hospital while he was going through it and then he still plays polo on the horse and even though he has like a loss of his i think it was his left side if i remember and uh and so you're you know you're training these people with these types of issues and to be performing at high levels you know um it's it's incredible man and you get to see these people come in and they're very quiet in the very beginning but by the time they leave they're on fire they're like they're like fuck yeah what's next like what other shit can i fuck up like what what can i get after you know they're really getting after in life and uh yeah man so i love being there it's important you know you're literally kind of changing the world slowly um, one person at a time, and uh, I, I like to do it because I hate, I hate when people. I very much dislike strong word. I really can't stand when people look at me and they're like, "Oh, he's missing a leg. He can't do shit." And I'm like, "Dude, I'll fuck you up." <laughs> like, Dude, I will you for me, <laughs> whatever the fuck you need to do. Like, I will do that. And, uh, but you can scroll through your Instagram and see that you do more things, more activities missing your leg than 99% of the population with all their limbs. Yeah. Like as I've seen you, there was a video of you deadlifting 315 <laughs> surfing. Uh, what was it? Uh, did you jujitsu? Um, you know what I'm saying? Like hunting, bow hunting, hiking, you're out doing things. Yeah. It's I want to wild. Live. And the only way to do it is like, 
it's to just suffer, man, is, uh, is just grind through it. You know, I don't, I don't, you know, when I'm bow hunting, I'm not the fastest walker. I'm always the guy in the back now, which is like the opposite of how it was in the military. And so kind of like learning to accept, you know, I'm that fucking slow guy. Now. Yeah. <laughs> I can still do it, you know? And, uh, that's all that matters to me is, uh, is if I have that chance. Like that's all I need. If, if there is a possibility, like that is all I need and we're going to figure it out and we're going to make it work however it works. And, uh, yeah, that's like such an important, uh, attitude to have. Dude, I, no, I agree. Like you, you, your story is incredibly motivating and we, Tyree and I've had the great fortune of, of, of talking to some people on the show who, who like you make me feel lazy. Like you make me feel lazy. You know what I'm saying? Like, not, you know, we all go through things, right? Especially those of us who served and deployed and, and, you know, we, we have experiences that we don't necessarily want to have. I would rather have them than some other random person. You know what I'm saying? But like, I hear a story like yours and I'm like, fuck man, what am I doing with my life? (laughs) <laughs> it's so cool that you're doing this, man. Like you, you're living your life and, you know, and, and, and who knows, man, if if you hadn't gone through what you had gone through, who knows what your, your trajectory would have been like, where would you be now? Would you have met your wife? Would you be working with the adaptive training foundation? Um, you know, so it's like Tyree said, man, hats off to you, man. Cause like you're, you're out there like kicking ass, dude. Like, um, I'm so happy that that this is where you are and that like and that you've turned it around and like you've and you know you, you've done it you, you know I'm, I was going to say by yourself like the the mental part of it the mental aspects of it, pulling yourself out of the party scene because you're realizing this may not be ideal um and 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 segueing into these other aspects of your life and these other things and getting hooked up with these other people I mean, like, like you said in the beginning of the show, man, a lot of stars had to align to get you to where you are today. And, um, I'm, I'm thankful for it for you, for sure, man. Appreciate that. I think a lot of it is, uh, divine intervention. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a big believer now and, and I've had, um, two like really incredible experiences. Um, I don't know where you guys are with faith or not about it. That's okay. Um, you know, when, when I say like, I, I saw like different nonprofits, one of them was, uh, American warrior association and they're like a faith-based retreat. You go up in the mountains of Colorado, kind of disconnect for the week and, uh, you do a little bit of horseback riding, some hiking, a little bit of archery. Um, and the first trip I've done with them, um, I had like a, an ingrown hair that turned into kind of like a large cyst. Um, and that was like on the inside of my prosthetic. So it was like, every time I walked, I was basically putting all my body weight on that. And it was fucking painful. It sucked. So <laughs> don't worry. All the guys on that trip will give me shit about this. Uh, we did a, we did a hike on this mountain <laughs> and, uh, they were, I was just like super salty. I was that guy. <laughs> I was that guy. And they're like, look, man, just, just go at your own pace. The group is going to go. And it's like, all right. So uh, there was another amputee, Chris Biggs. Uh, unfortunately, he passed away recently. Um, God bless that guy, man. 
Um, but uh, him and I made it to the mountain, uh, to the top, and then the rest of the group got there. The rest of the group got there. It started raining and hailing, and so we were just hiding under a bunch of trees. And uh, once that all stopped, we started a campfire to cool off or to warm up, <laughs> to warm up and dry off. And uh, you know, the the leader Dandy was like, "All right, guys, we're gonna do we're gonna do a little meditation." And so, all right. And um, so we're like just watching the fire and we're playing the, you know, the music. I don't really know what to call that type of music. and just call it like yoga or meditation music. Very like spatial atmosphere. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, hippie vibes, hippie vibes. <laughs> kind of gets you, kind of gets you in the mood, right? Yeah. Uh, so they're like, all right, close your eyes. And so I'm just listening to the fire crackle and listening to his music. And he goes, um, think about your favorite place in the world. And I'm like, fuck, I love the beach. And so I'm looking and I'm just like my eyes closed and uh, I start seeing a beach, these really nice waves. I'm like, man, that's a nice left. I can, I can totally surf these waves. Like, and, um, and I look around and there's like a jungle behind me and there's like this never ending beach. It's maybe like 40, 50 yards wide. And then there's like this massive mountain, single mountain uh, behind me to my left. And um, a little more time goes by and uh, he goes like, what's the, what's the one thing if Jesus could help, like help you with one thing right now, what would it be? And I'm like, Oh man, uh, physically, well, I made it up the mountain. So I guess I'm okay there. Um, But like emotionally and spiritually, I'm like, I'm dead, man. Like, I'm just like I really need help there. So that's what I thought of. Okay, so a little bit more time goes by, and then he goes, um, "Look around you. See if there's anything on the ground. See if there's people or animals. See if there's trash. Where like, what are you seeing?" And so, like, you know, sitting in the sand, and and by this time, I don't hear the fire. I just hear the waves. And I hear seagulls and I hear the breeze. And uh, I look and I don't see anyone. I look this way and I see a figure in the heat mirage, like way out there. Like, I don't know, but he was really far. And uh, and I look back, nothing. And I look back again and there he is. It's Jesus. And he's in a white robe and he's got this green sash. And he walks up to me and he holds his hand out and he's, um, almost like you're gonna, you know, present someone with like a challenge coin, and there's like it's it, instead of a coin, it's like this folded white cloth, and I go to accept it, and he hugs me, and he says, "You're gonna be okay, Derek," and I freaking lost it, like emotional, water falling, everything, and um, and after he hugs me, he puts his hands on my shoulders, and he just grins, and he turns to the jungle and walks away, and I sit down like, oh my just happened like i'm like blown away right and then all of a sudden i hear if you want to accept this gift that jesus just gave you you need to stand up and walk the path right now and man i freaking i see my prosthetic going to my other leg because that's how i get up and i walk the path and all of a sudden i hear like you really want this to work you got to run after him full speed like with everything you got and i just start sprinting and um 
like throwing branches out of the way. And then all of a sudden I see him next to me sprinting with me and then boom, it went dark. And then all of a sudden, uh, sorry for throwing you guys out there like this, but like every single dude there was like crying every single one. And, um, I was like, oh man, you jokers aren't going to see me this ugly. I literally got up and walked through the woods like this, like crying my eyes out. And like how I didn't run into all the trees that were there is like blows my mind. But uh, I got to this lake called Oyster Lake. Uh, For those of you in Colorado, I think it's Steamboat area. I think that's where Oyster Lake is. It's in that area, but it's on the mountain. And uh, I got there, man, and I, and I just remember sitting down crying. And I, and I remember my vision became all this smoke. And it was almost like TVs that were surrounded by smoke came up, and they were my memories. And they were like these traumatic experiences. And and I, every time one floated up into my view, it was like all that weight. I could feel like it was almost like a, having an anxiety attack, 10,000 pounds in your chest, and then it dissipated. And... Um, uh, every time that happened, it got lighter, and then the weight of that event like went away, and uh, it did like a bunch of these. And then finally, you know, the guys started calling me because I think I was gone for like twenty or thirty minutes. And um, man, when I finally came to and like regained my composure, I felt like a million bucks, dude. Like when we left, I ran down the mountain. I didn't feel any pain. I felt like probably the best I've ever felt in my life. And I've felt like this level of peace and content and like comfort I've never felt before. And um, I was not running up the mountain. I was like in really bad pain. Um, man, it was, it was incredible. So since that time, a lot of things changed. Um, and that was that was the first of two times that I got to uh, to meet Jesus. And uh, the second time I was going to um, going to an MRI appointment at the Dallas VA because uh, I thought um, the mass in my pituitary gland had grown so much that it was now pushing on a nerve, which was causing me to see these like little specks of light in my vision. And I, I learned about that mass in 2014, and then. Um, in 2016, I checked on it and it was bigger. And then I kind of like ignored my medical appointments. Uh, I, I avoid hospital like the plague. I'm so over it. Like, I need to. Yeah, like, yeah, I can imagine why. <clears throat> and um, so I get to the VA and I'm already pissed because it's the VA. I fuck the VA, right? Like super pissed super disgruntled uh and they're like yeah we're an hour behind they were four hours behind and uh so my wife goes like you know i, I talked to my wife i'm like these jokers don't see me in like the next 15 to 30 minutes i'm out of here i don't even care if i fucking bring <laughs> screw this right and uh and so she goes pray about it and so i did and it was like a few minutes later a vietnam vet missing the same leg on the same side sat right in front of me and he starts talking to me about my leg and we just, I go from like super pissed to like joking around and happy. Um, and then they called us back to the next waiting room and I met the guy that uh, actually made the contract for the U S to get the Husky vehicles. And so I was a Husky vehicle operator. Like 
steering broke and like that's why i'm here you know like and uh so like the the amount of things lining up right and uh so i get called to my last waiting room which is right outside the mri machine and um the nurse goes this is gonna take like 30 45 minutes and you know just stay still and uh it'll it'll be okay it'll go by faster all right 10 minutes into this i'm like freaking out trying to box breathe like i'm like freaking some of my trauma is like being stuck in that vehicle and remembering that feeling. It was like a hundred thousand degrees in there. That's kind of how it felt in an MRI machine. And then there's like all these noises that sound like machine guns and shit. And it's like, Oh man, <laughs> put me in overdrive right now. So I'm ready to hit the nurse button uh, and I call on Jesus and man, boom, right back there on the beach. Jesus walking up real fast. And he just shakes my hand and I go, you got me Lord. And he goes, I got you. And then, um, I remember just like saying, you know, I remember thinking back, like not asking for forgiveness, not saying anything at all to him the first time. And I'm like, Lord, please forgive me for all these sins. And I just unloaded all of them that I could remember. And he goes, let's take a walk. And I'm like, are you sure? And I'm like, hey, right. And he's like, I'm sure. And so as we get up and we're walking the tree line, he tells me hunt, hunt. And he's telling me over and over to hunt. And then he turns around and like knife hands me and he goes, you need to take the boys and the girls hunting. And I was like, all right, yeah, I could do that. This is actually what I really want to do. And now I, now I have to do it because the man himself told me. And, I, you know, I remember, like, just telling him over and over, like, I wish I could talk to you about so much. Um, come to me in my dream. Come to me in person. Like, just come back, man. Like, please, like, I have so much to talk to you about. Well, and then uh, I remember it feeling like we were getting to our destination and I heard, oh, we're done, you know. So in the span of like that five minute conversation, like 55 minutes passed. Uh, and I didn't realize that until after when I was driving home, calling my wife, telling her about the story. Then a month later, uh, I don't have the mass anymore in my pituitary. It's completely gone. Hmm. So I was like, man, divine intervention, man. And, uh, and it's, so it's been, uh, it's kind of why I've been, um, really, really geared towards, uh, doing these archery programs is because I am trying to make hunters and take them hunting. And, um, and when you, when you follow, uh, I can't remember what verse is. And, uh, but basically when you follow the purpose that God gives you, like you will be blessed and he will open the doors that you need. And uh, that's what he's been doing with uh, at Adaptive Training Foundation. I, I talked to David War, the founder, and I was like, hey, whether ATF supports this or not, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to start collecting archery gear. And, um, and like, offline on our own time, I'm going to just have archery days because I know there's a bunch of bow hunters and archers here already that compete and, and bow hunt. We're just going to do it on our time. He's like, hey. Put, make a budget, see if we can help you out. So I did, and they were able to make a budget and uh, buy a few compound bows for it. Um, and then I also uh, asked to step in to run the archery program for Operation Enduring Warrior. And uh, that's a, a different nonprofit. They do uh, a lot of like Tough Mudder, War Axe, and Spartan races. Uh, they do skydiving and they do public speaking and uh, they also do archery and they allowed me to come in and, and take that over. And this year was the first year uh, 
we did that and uh, I try to focus mainly on like 3D archery because I'm trying to build hunters, right? So uh, training people, uh, leading these programs and uh, trying to be a better husband, kind of going through it right now with my marriage. Um, but thankfully, I'm in, I would say I'm in the best situation to be in in a shitty situation kind of my outlook on it but uh so a lot of a lot of really amazing things have been happening uh since those experiences and since coming to the gym and, and it's all just asking that's it just asking showing up for myself and then them seeing me prove myself through my actions and then uh seeing how like dedicated i am to archery and like I spent a lot of time during quarantine learning about archery. Yeah. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> so, hey. I've tried, I've um, tried it a few times, and I am terrible. Yeah. I, I never. Are. All right. So, we're um, – I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, I'm sorry for bailing out on that little bit, man. It was a bit much for me. I couldn't do it. Uh, but – uh, again still thank you so much for coming on uh, thank you everyone for listening to before I forget please like listen share and subscribe Kevin you got anything Derek really I, man I appreciate you coming on and telling your story dude like uh, it, I know it was hard um, reliving some of that and I hope that you know for anybody that, that listened and uh, that they learned that they can talk about it too because um, we have to, you know what I mean? Like, regardless of, of what it is, it doesn't matter how big or small your, our trauma is. Trauma is trauma. And we have to talk about it. We have to do something about it. We can't, you know, resort to, you know, uh, coding ourselves, not coding ourselves, padding ourselves with, with substance um, or burying ourselves in some, you know, particular lifestyle that detract, detract, detracts from it all. Like, you have to, you have to talk about it. You got to live through it. And, um, uh, and uh, the more we talk about it, the more we can help other people. And that's, that matters a lot. And uh, so I want to thank you again for, for coming on and talking about all that stuff, man. Like it's been really good listening to what you had to say and uh, really appreciate it, dude. Yeah. Uh, thank you, gentlemen. I really appreciate you guys. I, I do consider this an honor to be, uh, to be asked to be someone that speaks up about things and um, for you to recognize the things that I'm doing and I'm not out there like, Oh, everyone look at me. I'm just trying to like live an example and just be like, Hey, this is possible, man. Um, so thank you guys. And thanks for what you've done. And thanks for what you're doing and giving me this opportunity. Absolutely, man. All right. So again, thank you for listening to before I forget, please like, listen, share, subscribe, check out www.beforeforgetthepodcast.com. And we will see you guys later. Later guys. Take care. You too, man. <laughs>